Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. Excited to be talking to Ted Clark today. Hey, Ted, how are you? Well, I'm doing great, man. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on Uncaged today, Ted. Um, Ted has over 40 years experience and most recently served as the executive vice president and chief operating officer of HB Fuller Company. He has had an incredible career. He's written one book about that amazing career in the adhesive space. And I'm sure we're going to be touching upon all of that in a second. But now he's actually a partner at Iron Path Capital, uh, which is very relevant to a book that he has coming out in September called Buy and Build CEO, Leveraging Private Equity to Build a Winning Global Business. So Ted, well, I'm sure we'll touch upon the book, but before we get there, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Sure. Um, so I've had a kind of an unusual career. Some, some people call it an unlikely career path. I, I started as a uh, as a high school educated shipping clerk at uh, 19 years old uh, with a small pro- uh, public company out in California called Products Research Corporation or PRC, uh, and manufacturers of uh, adhesives and sealants uh, and coatings for the aerospace industry. Uh, I started there as, as, again as a shipping clerk and uh, worked my way up uh, without the benefit of a college degree to become CEO uh, 22 years later. Uh, and then I was uh, CEO there for for six years, and uh, really had uh, kind of record sales and profits, and um, and then uh, eventually was uh, uh, sold off to uh, PPG Industries. Um, and then after after that, I um, I uh, tried to use my relevant skills as a CEO, and I did a I did a bankruptcy turnaround, a, a small assignment for a private equity group for about two and a half years, and uh, learned uh, learned a lot about you know, managing and running a business in distress. Um, and then from there, I, I came up with a thesis and a vision to build a global adhesives and sealants business and partnered with a private equity firm uh, and uh, built that up to, uh, you know, from really from an idea to a $700 million business with $140 million of EBITDA uh, over about a 14-year period, which uh, which I then sold off to uh, HP Fuller Company, and then I stayed on there as a chief operating officer till I till I left to become a partner at Iron Path. That's amazing. I mean, I always feel that leaders that come and kind of go through all the steps of a business have a much better understanding of what their employees actually go through than the guys that just step into the big job without doing that. So I love that uh, thesis of shipping clerk to CEO. But now uh, you're, you find yourself in the, the world of private equity. And in fact, actually, you have a book coming out about that as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about Buy and Build CEO and what people are going to find in it. Sure. Um, well, you know, um, one of the things is yeah, I think private equity uh, capital is sort of misunderstood. And, uh, you know, and I started this over 20 years ago. I, I, had, I had no idea what private equity was. Uh, I, I read some articles and uh, 
I think it was Business Week, and you know, management—they uh, call them LBOs at the time—and you know, partnering up with people that would provide equity. And uh, initially enough, I wanted to try and buy uh, PRC, the company I was CEO of, and uh, actually partnered with uh, with the Carlisle Group, which is uh, you know one of the largest private equity companies in the world, and uh, and and took a pretty hard run at it. Uh, but uh, but lost out in the bidding process to PPG. But it really it really sort of sort of opened up something for me that you know m- maybe there's an opportunity with private equity to create wealth for myself and my family and others. And um, and um, and so uh, so then I tried this. Uh, I got a call from a, one of the private equity companies I'd met and said they had this bankruptcy turnaround and. I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I'll try that, right? It'd take me out of my comfort zone a little bit, and um, and which it did. It was really a different, a completely different situation managing a distressed business, and uh, and did that, uh, and uh, you know went through the process and and uh, preserved a major part of the business that that eventually came out of bankruptcy. Uh, then I left there with enough confidence to uh, sort of go to go to a group of private equity companies and, uh, you know, present a, a pitch to them, the thesis I had about uh, consolidating uh, the, uh, participating in the consolidation of the heaths and sealants industry globally. Uh, I asked for a hundred million dollars of equity without, you know, without having a company or anything. Um, uh, uh, pitched, the, pitched the idea and, and found a, a really great, um, a private equity group called Quad C Management that uh, was willing to back, kind of back my play there, and uh, and then I used everything I'd learned over my 26 years at PRC, the networking, the you know the other other companies in the market, um, and uh, and 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 went out and and sort of found a platform company in 2003. Um, so the book kind of takes you through the whole process. You know, how do you develop a pitch? How do you how do you know that you've got the right vision and strategy? Um, and then once you have that, every step gets harder, right? So it's it's almost it's it's a it's a it's a it's a a high risk sort of game, right? Because you have, everything's time fenced. If you can't find a platform company a certain period of time, then boom, it's all over. If uh, if you get a platform company and you can't find the right add-ons and you can't build something that, that that mirrors your vision, then boom, it's over, right? So it's uh it's a it's a really interesting and uh I think I think readers will find it to be uh a very practical look at private equity and how you can use private equity to really uh actualize a vision that you have, you know, rather than just sort of, you know, being a kind of, you know, CEO that goes around and you work, you know, you're CEO of one company and, you know, something happens there and then you get another job as a CEO of another company. This was an opportunity for me to really have a more of a creative uh, 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 insight into what I wanted to achieve and really kind of, co- you know, kind of found that and and drive it into a, drive it into a successful business. Yeah, into a massive global business. I mean, it's an incredible story. You mentioned up front that there's perhaps kind of misunderstandings of private equity. What do you think people get wrong about private equity? Yeah, well, I think, you know, most of the, when you, well, first of all, I think the, the private equity industry doesn't do the greatest job in promoting itself, right? And, and you know, I guess it's because if private's in your name, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, maybe that's the way they feel about it. But, um, 
you know, the stories in the in the business press and the and the and the you know in the media, you know, tend to focus on you know kind of quote unquote asset strippers and you know people that come in and just cut costs and you know do a do a quick flip, right? Um, well, really, the opposite is really true, right? It's uh, you know, private equity is an opportunity to put equity to work in good businesses. I mean, you know, the good uh, I would say the majority of private equity companies are looking for good, well-run companies to invest in that have a story, that have a thesis that they can build on, right? And so I think, uh, you know, while, while, you know, there's opportunities if you take a, you know, a public company private to sort of reduce some of the overheads because of the, all the public reporting, that's, you know, that's fair game, right? But it can, it's not really the thesis that drives the growth. The thesis has got to be built around you know, how do you take a company that's doing, you know, 100 million in EBITDA or 200 million in EBITDA and get it to, you know, three or 400 million in EBITDA? And the only way you can do that is really with, with a sound vision and strategy and, and, and a growth mindset to, you know, to create, to create value for yourself and, and, and your, your investors. Who, by the way, you know, I mean, the other thing I think people misunderstand about private equity is that, you know, all your next door neighbors are one way or the other invested in private equity through their pension funds or their 401ks, right? So it is it is one of the asset classes that that has higher returns. So there's a mix of private equity with, you know, bonds and public, you know, public equities and so forth. Um, and so it's an important part of of of, of really how how, how how we create value in the United States, uh, you know, to support these uh, you know, these pension funds and and endowments to, to universities and so forth. So you mentioned one thing, Ted, that I thought was kind of important. I mean, it's going to seem so obvious to you, but you looked for initially. It seemed like that first company, the company that you were going to build everything around. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, I mean, how big does that have to be versus kind of the add-ons that you're adding on from there? Yeah. yeah well, so, so in my case, I, I, I had the goal of building, initially a goal of building a $300 million, um, you know, company, right? So that was, it was stated in my, in my thesis, right? Of 300 to 300 to 400 million. Um, and, and, and to, to get there, you know, I was looking to try and find a platform company that was doing, you know, let's say $100 million in sales. Uh, and, then, and then do these add-ons, which in a highly fragmented industry like adhesives, you know, there's a lot of companies that are 20, 30, 40 million in sales that you can, you know, you can acquire an add-on. <clears throat> uh, the reality, though, is, is always different than the thesis, right? So, so, um, so what we found is... Uh, you know, we had you know five or six things in the thesis, right? We, you know, it, it you know, it, you know, it uh, had to have a good management team. You know, it had to have some kind of technology. It had to have some position at two or three important important market segments. Um, it, you know, it had to have good you know cash flow history and so on and so forth, right? And uh, and what we found is when you when you design your kind of platform company, you end up with about you know fifty or sixty percent of it. It's probably where you start, right? So, and that's part of this sort of working with private equity. And and you know, if you if you wait around to get the perfect platform, you may never get started, right? So, but yeah, if you get a weak platform, you may never you may never 
you may never get to your vision, right? So finding that balance was was really important. And we, we found a company that was uh, had a lot of it. It was called Royal Adhesus, and um, it was uh, had a great factory and great R and D lab. You know, good good management team. Um, had uh, had had good technology. Had you know a leading position in two or a couple of different markets. Uh, but it had one huge problem. It had a customer concentration problem. It had one customer that was 65% of its sales, right? So that you know that put a lot of pressure on us, right? Because you know we thought it would be good to to do it, but 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 some risk there. Uh, and through diligence, we got you know we got pretty comfortable that uh, over at least over a five-year period, we'd be able to really maintain most, if not all, of that business. Uh, but it put a lot of pressure on us to do these additional, you know, for organic growth outside of that customer, and then uh, also uh, doing smart acquisitions that we could, could could begin to reduce that concentration issue before we, you know, would do a planned exit at some time in the future. Yeah. Now, I mean, I can only imagine that uh, throughout your 40-year career, the adhesives world has changed dramatically. And, you know, we've lived through this moment with the pandemic where supply chains have been impacted dramatically. I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on perhaps what has changed on your philosophy or the way you do things over the last couple of years, maybe new things that have creeped into your model of how you go about stuff with the way business is operating now. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, it's, it, the pandemic, I was, I was running the three global businesses, um, at HP Fuller, uh, with 70, 72 factories, uh, throughout the globe, 32 R and D centers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, what we went overnight from, you know, being on, you know, overnight flights to New Delhi and, you know, uh, you know, Shenzhen and all these places, visiting factories, uh, you know, working with management teams to really uh, no travel, no travel at all. Right. And a lot of uncertainty. Um, and one of the things that really helped us is that over the previous couple of years, we'd reorganized our company from five business units to three we had we had made a decision, the CEO and I had made a decision that, you know, we wanted to get closer to our customers, right? So we wanted decision making closer to the markets we were serving, and, and globally we were serving 30 different markets. <clears throat> and through that, through that, we had went through a process culturally of sort of uh, uh, working with 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 our leaders and giving them the authority to make decisions at a, at a level closer to the customer. So. We're kind of in that process of, you know, we want to have a kind of a, you know, guidepost and and uh, you know, a good a good a good global strategy process. It's driven from the bottom up. And but once we have the agreed strategy, we want the teams to really run their businesses, right? So we were kind of kind of creating this esprit de corps around the idea that we wanted this agile kind of approach. And um, just coincidentally, we had gone live with this these three new business units. I think in uh, December of 2019, right? So we were managed them, you know, without any any issues for four months, and then all of a sudden we had the whole world on fire with COVID. Um, and you know, we we uh, we really had to like kind of accelerate our trust within the company, right? So it was okay. You know, we had a, a great team in China as an example, and they were kind of early affected early. 
And, uh, you know, they were, you know, they, you know, we said, look at, you know, we can't, whatever you need, we'll support you, but, you know, you're going to have to come back and tell us, you know, what's the best way for us to keep our factories open, right? So our goal was to keep all our factories open globally and do it safely. And, uh, and, you know, we were able to do that with, you know, in China and, you know, all through Southeast Asia, India, uh, Egypt, uh, Europe, of course, um, and of course, uh, you know, kind of the Americas here. Uh, and each one of the, each one of those teams really stepped up. I mean, we learned a lot about, about, you know, the idea that, you know, you hire people, you pay them a lot of money, and then and many times you don't let them make any decisions, right? So, so our goal, our goal was to let them make decisions and, uh, and sort of report back to us. And we learned, we learned a ton from that, right? So it helped us actually coach and advise uh, other leaders throughout our global, our global system. You know, uh, that's that. really that's- interesting, Ted. The first time I think I've heard that. So you really kind of empowered the team in a way, because I guess in a more distributed or kind of a global company, but perhaps a less closely, I don't know, tethered global company, you kind of have to, right? I mean, yeah, that, that was it. I mean, we, you know, fortunately we had, you know, things like Zoom and Teams and all that to, you know, talk to people. And we did a lot, we did a lot of that, right? So we wanted, the thing we wanted was kind of, kind of to allow the decision-making to be done. We wanted connectivity, right? So we want, we, you know, we wanted to be seen as coaches really and not as decision-makers. Um, and, uh, and, and even in the United States, I mean, you know, you know, all the states have different rules, right? So, um you know, we had to leave, you know, our, our people in Illinois, for example, had to deal with different problems than our people in California. And, you know, to that extent, I mean, I, I personally, I was leading the whole COVID um, compliance thing uh, globally. You know, I was reading sort of governor orders and, you know, all this kind of stuff so that I could, I could, I could advise people, right? So they weren't spending their time doing that, but we could advise and say, look, at here's, here's why we think this is a little bit different. And, you know uh, how how you can keep the factory open and what you should what you should be thinking about in terms of compliance. But you know it was a it was a time where if we had not had the trust in those local leaders by the employees, we would have had a real real problem, right? Because you know most of them wanted to to come to work. You know we were we were a you know a essential industry, and they wanted to come to work, but they wanted to know that we were you know, we were being thoughtful about how we were protecting them and their families um, and still allowing them to come to work. So, uh, so yeah, you know, we, um, I think that, you know, sometimes we forget that factories have to stay open to make things. And, you know, the idea that everyone can work virtually doesn't work if you're running a factory. But, you know, now we find ourselves in an interesting year, 2022, lots of other new, wonderful economic challenges. I mean, how are you thinking about this year and what's on the horizon? Yeah, I think uh, we're feeling, you know, pretty positive. I mean, obviously, inflation is now you know, the, the, the real challenge, right? And it's all, it's all it, at least from, from, from my perspective, you know, it all sort of began being driven out of that, you know, uh, uh, January 2021 freeze in Texas, right? Well, you know, for my industry, for special chemicals, but, you know, people don't really get how critical uh, chemicals are for the entire supply chain. So, you know, any, any, any non-metallic, Kind of material is, is is made from some kind of chemical, right? Um, 
and that really started this whole this whole a whole problem and you know we saw two things right we saw a real dislocation in and how the supply chain was working um and then um uh and then we 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 have really saw the you know prices starting to increase as a result so you know i mean i think we're coming off a very high you know uh consumer price index you know just this last month um you know um you know pricing's been going through the system so we've been doing two things right so we we took the view that look at you know we're we're an important you know if we're an essential company we're an important part of the supply chain right so we have to go above and beyond to try and support our customers and uh you know we were doing things as an example uh we were uh leasing 747s and moving uh you know polymer materials from china to the us to keep um uh, uh you know for for a product line that's used to, in the in the commercial construction industry for roofing and our customers said, look, we, you know, we can't stop these projects. You have to, you know, you tell us what, you know, you tell us what it's going to cost, but we need to have it. And, 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 and the customers, you know, ended up paying for, you know, for this additional service, right? So it was something where you had to think out of the box a little bit. And our, our people, you know, initially it was, well, you know, we think the, you know, raw materials are going to go up, they're going to come back down. And I think, you know, we took the view early on that, no, this, this is, this is going to be something that we're going to deal with for a number of years, right? And I think while it's getting better, we're still dealing with it in 2022. And I think, you know, there's two things now, right? So you still have this underlying inflationary pressure, but you are starting to see things slow a bit, right? So, so now, you know, hopefully we're going to miss this kind of stagflation, which, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I was I was in a business last time we had that in the 1980s, so. Um, I think we all hope we missed that one, Ted. It'll be good if we do. And so now the, the book Buy and Build CEO comes out in September? Yep, September 13th. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, for me, it's been a, a, gr- a great experience to, uh, to write it. It's, it's kind of, it's, um, uh, although it sounds like it's about me, it's, it's, really about, it's really about the private equity uh, industry from an operator's point of view, right? So I, I didn't, I didn't want it to be so much from an investor's point of view. I, I wanted to look at it from an operator's point of view, and and somebody who, who you know, had a dream to build a business, and you know, uh, but not the equity to support it, right? So you know, you have some equity, you have a little bit of equity, but if you're going to build a, you know, what ultimately turned out to be a seven hundred million dollar company. You know, you need to, you know, you need, you know, quite a bit of equity to get to get the uh, to get the business kicked off, and uh, and so it's, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a fun fun story to uh, to tell and. Yeah, I mean, Ted, I think it's an amazing book, actually. The reality is that I think almost all entrepreneurs at some point come to that scale moment or CEOs who are running existing businesses also have that moment where they say, hey, maybe there's something bigger here. Maybe there's a bigger thesis. And how to navigate that is tricky if you don't really know it. So I think it's definitely a needed piece of literature. Ted, um, this is really interesting stuff that we've been covering today. If someone wanted to reach you, where's the best way to get in touch with you? No, they can just they can go to my uh, my website, which is uh, uh, tedclarkauthor.com. Um, and that, that's probably the best. It, uh, it has a lot of information on the books and, 
you know, my background and, um, you know, I feature some articles that, I, that I've written for different magazines and, and other publications. Um, so that, uh, that, that, that's the best way. And then you can look, look me up on LinkedIn. I think you just type in uh, Theodore or Theodore Clark or Ted Clark, and it should pop you to my, uh, my LinkedIn site. So that's probably the easiest way. Excellent. Well, listen, Ted, thank you so much for joining us on Uncaged today. We've been speaking with Ted Clark. Ted has over 40 years experience as a senior executive in a variety of companies in the adhesive space. He's written now two books about uh, one, his first book, Shipping Clark to CEO, and now the new book, Buy and Build CEO. So you can get a copy of that starting in September. A good gift, (laughs) hopefully. Hopefully, right? <laughs> and thank you so much for being on the show today, Ted. We look forward to having you back. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate Cheers. it. Thank you.